there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. (laughs) All right, 203. Wow, the room's intimate. (laughs) You mean it's small. I just thought we would have been in a bigger room, Colonel Hogan. Stop. What? You know I hate that. You hate that you're famous? I hate just being associated with that one character. I've been in many. Yeah, yeah. I know the speech. Save it for your shrink. What the? No, relax. It's fine. Uh, Why is he here? Don't mind me, miss. It's fine. He's just going to be over there. Uh, Bob, stop. This is weird. He's setting up a camera. Is he filming us? Bob Crane was a famous TV star throughout the 60s and 70s. But he would become almost equally famous for his extracurricular kinks and scandals. And ultimately, he'd become most famous for the strange night in 1978 when he was mysteriously murdered. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to the first episode on the murder of Hogan's hero star, Bob Crane. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Let's go back to before the scandals, before the fame. Back to when Bob Crane was just beginning his life in entertainment. Bob Crane spent most of his early childhood in Stamford, Connecticut. He became obsessed with music and drumming in particular at the age of 11 when he saw famous jazz and big band drummer Gene Krupa perform at the New York World's Fair. From that moment, his passion for drumming never ended. He played in his school orchestra, jazz band, and marching band. And after the school day ended, he played in youth orchestra programs with both the Connecticut and Norwalk symphonies. Hold it now, lightly, lightly. There's a reason you're playing with brushes instead of sticks right now. Oh, sorry. Hey, don't stop. That's right, bring it back in. Nice and easy, relax. Gotcha. See, there you go. By the time Bob was in high school, he was already immersed in a world of stardom. Going to New York City to take drumming lessons. And his teacher was William Randolph Cozy Cole, a big band musician who would go on to have a number three hit on the Billboard 100 with the song Topsy Two. He was exactly the kind of man Bob wanted to grow up to be. However, there were a few roadblocks in the way of this dream. Do you know what I did at your age? And my father before me? I know, Father. And I will, too. I'm 
I'm excited about it. That makes me proud, son. Nothing more honorable than defending your country. Which branch are you looking at? The National Guard? The National Guard? Hmm. What? So you'll still be here then? Just in reserve? They do a lot of good, Father. And I'll still be working at the watch shop. So Bob Crane joined the National Guard in June 1948. And that took up most of his life for the next two years. As for the part of his life that it didn't take up. We'll need a little more time with the menu. Thanks. Of course, sir. Oh my gosh, Bob. This place, this is so nice. Not as nice as you, Anne. Oh, stop it. Anything look good? I was looking at the lobster mashed potatoes and... Your drinks. Bob, what's that in mine? Is that... (gasps) Oh! On May 20th, 1949, Bob married Anne Terzian, his high school sweetheart. Before long, they'd have three children, even naming their youngest son Robert after Crane. But family life left little time for Bob to pursue his dream of drumming. In May of 1950, Bob was honorably discharged from the National Guard. But there was soon another hindrance in the way to stardom. Honey, can you change the channel? I can, but this song will be on every one. It's massive. (sighs) You don't like it? It's so pretty and so sad. Yeah, but where's the excitement? Where's the energy? The electricity? You mean, where are the drums? Oh, I hear them. They're just playing quarter notes. That's it. The whole song. Well, the swing era was largely gone by this point, replaced by the popular style of crooners, which didn't appeal to Bob in the same way. He felt no passion for this new style. But Bob wasn't done with his love of music, drumming, and big band. So he did the next best thing. This is Bob Crane, and you're listening to WLEA, Hornell's number one stop for swing music. Bob began his career in radio in Hornell, New York. In addition to being a DJ, he was immediately named program director. He would bounce from station to station. I'm Bob Crane, and from the entire station at WLEA, we want to wish you a happy weekend, Hornell. You're listening to WBIS in Bristol, Connecticut. Don't turn that dial. Stay here with me, Bob Crane, on WICC, number one in Connecticut. While he ran WICC and did the morning show there, Bob became a huge hit. They beat out CBS's Boston affiliate, WEEI, in the ratings. And CBS thought, if you can't beat him, hire him. Are you going to take the job? In Boston? No. No, no, no. But... Bob, it's CBS. They're offering you more money. To do my show for Red Sox fans? Oh, come on. I'm kidding. Well, mostly. But I don't like Boston. There's nothing there for me. However, CBS wasn't done with Crane. They still wanted their station to be the top in the New England market. So they came to Crane with a new offer, a Los Angeles morning show. The CBS station in Los Angeles, KNX, offered a deal that was essentially unheard of, especially in a major market like Los Angeles. A special dispensation from the engineer's union that gave him 100% control over what music he played. That settled it. He signed a five-year contract, and in August 1956... All right. When we first get there, what does everyone want to do? I want to go up to the Hollywood sign. I don't think they let us up there. Well, sure they will. And say, Robert's a big kid now, aren't you? Yeah. Can we please? Can we please? 
is. I'm okay with it if you are. I just don't know about the LAPD. The family quickly adjusted to life in Los Angeles, and none more so than Bob. He loved the proximity to the entertainment industry, and his love wasn't one-sided. You're listening to The Bob Crane Show on KNX Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Bob Crane, and that was I'm in Love Again by Fats Domino. Later on, we'll be joined by a very special guest. I think you might know her. She's just a little actress by the name of Marilyn Monroe. Bob Crane was a massive hit in Los Angeles. He changed radio forever and brought about the format we know today. His show combined funny commentary on current events, games, and bits with different celebrity impersonations, many done by Bob Crane himself, who was quite the impersonator. Titles were heaped on him by the press. King of the LA airwaves, man of a thousand voices, the most listenable DJ in LA history. But radio wasn't enough for Bob Crane. He had a new dream out in LA. A career in acting. However, despite his massive success, starting a career in acting would not be so easy. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Bob, good to see you. How are you doing? Well, I'd be doing better if I hadn't been sitting out in that lobby for 30 minutes. Ah, I'm sorry about that. I've been so swamped with meetings today. In and out, in and out. I'm shocked it's only 2.30. Thanks for taking the time out for me, then. Of course! Anything for you, Bob. Now, see, that just isn't true. What do you mean? I mean I auditioned for a role this week, Richard. A role in a television show. Why don't you have a seat? So the audition goes great. I'm meeting with the producer, we're figuring out schedules, and you don't seem so happy for me, Richard. Well, I'm happy you did well, though of course I'll be sad to see you go from our station. You've done wonders for us here in Los Angeles, and it'd be a shame. That's the thing. It won't be a shame, because I got a call later saying I'm not allowed to act in any television shows. Any movies either, for that matter. Bob, you gotta understand. You know we can't just let you leave. I mean, you signed that contract. We didn't try to hide anything. But this isn't up for renegotiation for four more years. Then we can discuss it in four years. For now, I'm afraid my hands are tied. You'll regret this, Richard. Mark my words. For the first five years of his contract, Bob was forbidden from acting anywhere. So he continued doing what he did best. Exceptional work in radio. But Bob bided his time. And in 1961, when he was able to renegotiate his contract, he finally got the chance to pursue acting gigs. Now the part's not big, but it's absolutely vital to the world of the story. And there's no one better to play it than you. Let's hear it. You're going to be a radio DJ. No. But not just one. You're the man of a thousand voices, yes? Well, sure. I heard it said. <laughs> splendid. Just splendid. So, what's the episode about? Our main character, Ed. He's living in the present, and he can't stand it. All he sees around him is crummy TV and a society that's not like the one he remembers from the 30s and 40s. Those grand old days of swing. <laughs> I know the feeling. So he goes down to the basement and gets his old radio. One of those big ones and puts it in his room. And everything it plays is radio from a bygone era. Edward Bowes, Fred Allen, Tommy Dorsey. They're all dead, but he's hearing them perform live. Only 
his neighbors, his friends, anyone else. When he tries to show them, all they hear is static. They think he's going mad. But then the twist. He actually hasn't. In his room, he's able to actually step back into the past and become young again. Mr. Serling, that's the most brilliant idea I've ever heard. Thank you so much for this opportunity. No, thank you, Bob. I'm looking forward to working with you. So, despite not being seen on screen, Bob booked his first acting gig on the Twilight Zone episode, Static. Sound? Sound, speed. Your voice warm, Mr. Radio Announcer? As it'll ever be. Check the gate. And... Action! But before we sign off, we invite you to stay tuned for Major Bowes and his famous Amateur Hour. This is station WPDA in Cedarburg, New Jersey, returning you to... Good evening, friends. Once again, the wheel of chance or faith, as you please, is about to revolve. And the barker standing at the wheel of fortune says, around and around she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. He had other small cameo appearances on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Channing, and General Electric Theater. These times he even managed to be on screen. But perhaps what really set him off on the path towards acting stardom was his interaction with a guest on his show. And from all of us here at KNX in Los Angeles, we wish you a happy weekend and look forward to talking again on Monday. Hey, Carl, can I get your attention really quick? Sure, Bob. I know you're going to think I say this to everyone, but I promise I don't. You're the best guest I've ever had on this show. Oh, well, thank you so much. Really. And I would do whatever it takes to return the favor. Return the... Oh, to be the best guest on mine. <laughs> well, let me look into writing a part for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Reiner. You won't regret it. Carl Reiner was the creator, producer, and actor on The Dick Van Dyke Show. And after his appearance on Bob's show, he did what Bob asked and got him a guest role. This was his biggest acting job yet, playing the seemingly amorous Harry Rogers, who is himself playing Mark Antony in an upcoming Cleopatra comedy sketch. His guest appearance went over so well that it quickly got him another booking. Donna Reed herself reached out to Crane and offered him a guest role on an episode as Dr. Dave Blevins. Dave? Dave, honey, wake up! What time is it? 5.30. I slept the whole day away? No, it's 5.30 in the morning. Tell whoever called to take two aspirin and keep warm till I get there. Dave, there's somebody in the house. It may be a cat burglar. He's out of luck. We don't even have a cat. The episode proved to be so popular that they wrote Bob in as a series regular and he became Dr. Dave Kelsey, a friend and neighbor to the main couple of the show. From the beginning of 1963 to the end of 1964, Bob was on the show. He even began taking lessons from Stella Adler during this time. By December of 1964, however, Bob already had his sights set on newer, bigger projects. After years of playing Dr. Dave Kelsey, pastures certainly looked greener elsewhere. Despite Crane's departure, he and Donna Reed remained on friendly terms. She continued giving him acting advice for years, and in 1969, he said, She was marvelous. I learned everything I know in the business from her. Uno, after he left the Donna Reed show, the offers didn't stop pouring in. We think you'd be perfect as the father role in My Mother the Car. Yeah, uh, 
I'm gonna have to pass. The show we're developing, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, it's going to be a laugh riot. And I can't picture anyone playing the father figure better than you. Bob was getting offers to play the lead in all kinds of new comedies, but every role was the same. A family man in a show simply about a family. Nothing in that genre interested him, and he turned down every offer. It would take something unique to pique his interest. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Oh, of course, Mr. Thorpe. So, what do you got? It's a... Actually, Jerry, before we even start, I just want to say right off the bat, I really don't have any interest in a family sitcom. Something that's just about, you know, trouble with the kids or... I forgot my wife's anniversary gift. Uh. I can assure you that is certainly not what I'm pitching you. No family involved in this at all. You're singing my tune, Jerry. No. This is set during World War II, and it takes place in a prisoner of war camp in Nazi Germany. <sighs> I, I don't... Uh, oh, come on. You have questions. That makes sense. Uh, my agent must have set this up by mistake. I'm a comedic actor. I don't do drama. And I definitely couldn't do a serious war drama. No, no, no. It's not a drama, see? It is a comedy. Well, then, Jerry, that brings up a whole new set of concerns. I don't feel comfortable, you know, basically making fun of the war. And I definitely don't want to make a joke of what those poor POWs actually went through. It's not, though. That's the beauty of it. It's not making fun of them at all. It's more of a satire. Look, if you'll just read the script, I know you'll see what we have here is something special. So Bob did just that. He read the pilot of Hogan's Heroes, and producer Jerry Thorpe was correct. Bob did love it. However, Bob felt that there was just one other group he needed permission from before signing on. Actual war veterans. Bob proposed that they set up a special screening for veterans so they could watch a trailer and then get their feedback. Well, what did everyone think? When does it start? I can't wait. Yeah, I agree. That German colonel, uh, what was his name? Uh, Klink. Oh boy, I can't wait to see what else our boys will pull over on him. <laughs> Is it insensitive to be making comedy about this? Hell no. Bob was sold. He did a screen test with the actor cast as Colonel Clink on December 22nd of 1964. The two had instant chemistry, and Crane seemed to be exactly what they needed in the lead role of Colonel Robert Hogan. He was quickly hired. They filmed the pilot the week of January 7th, 1965. CBS picked up Hogan's Heroes not long after to premiere in their fall lineup. Bob continued his job at KNX, but keeping up his family life and two intense jobs just left him feeling depleted. He left KNX and his long radio career on August 16, 1965. And so, the week after leaving radio on September 17, 1965, Hogan's Heroes premiered on CBS. Let's get out of here. Well, let's get our prisoner first. We haven't got time. Uh, uh, what? We can't keep a prisoner. Well, we've got our own prison. What better place to keep it? <laughs> the show was a critical hit right from the start. However, audiences were wary. They had many of the same fears Bob initially had. And perhaps even worse, many incorrectly thought that the show took place in a Nazi concentration camp. Since Bob had once been a skeptic, too, he became the front man to quell any controversy. I, the entire cast and crew, and CBS firmly believe there's no ethical way to make fun of concentration camps or Nazi atrocities. That's not what we're doing with this show. In fact, I think Stan Freeberg's tagline he made up off the cuff, if you like World War II, you'll love Hogan's Heroes, is itself in very poor taste. We're not making fun of the war, or of Germans for that matter. 
We're not trying to diminish the terror Hitler caused throughout all of Europe and really the world during the Great Depression and World War II. The series is simply a parody that has a mockery of authority punchline. I urge you, watch the show. You'll see. People did watch the show and loved it. The Nielsen ratings were through the roof. It was the only new show airing that fall that was in the top 10. And the ratings would stay high all throughout Hogan's Heroes run through 1971. Bob Crane thrived on the show. He was twice nominated for an Emmy, though he lost to Dick Van Dyke in 1966 and Don Adams in 1967. And the cast and crew had nothing but praise for him. They said the set felt like a big, happy family, and Crane was essential in fostering that atmosphere. The cast, however, was perhaps closer than those on the outside were even aware. Well, if it makes you feel any better, sir, there is a chimpanzee raking the garden. Well, if it makes you feel any better. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. You're busy. I feel so rude. I'm just running the same line over and over again. I'm not getting anywhere anyway. I was actually coming in to see if you wanted to run some lines. Well, of course. Which scene? Oh, it's, well, you know the one. What if Colonel Clink catches us? <laughs> you mean the kiss scene? Yeah, I just feel like I'm not getting the mood right. Well, come here. All right. Put your hand there, and then I'll hold you. <laughs> okay, see, now we're in character. Mm-hmm. And... Action. But what if Colonel Clink catches us? Prisoners are allowed one hour of recreation a day. I missed the volleyball game. <laughs> See, there was that excitement, that level of danger. I just couldn't get reading it alone. You did a very good job being in character. Thank you. Now, what if we tried the same scene out of character? Oh, you mean if I said, but what if your wife catches us? Patricia Olson, who was known to everyone by her stage name, Sigrid Valdis, was a fellow cast member of Hogan's Heroes. She played Hilda, Colonel Klink's secretary. Bob and Sigrid began their affair in 1968, and it continued throughout the run of the show. And in April of 1970, just two months before their 21st anniversary, Bob divorced Anne. And on October 16th of that same year, on the set of the show... Bob and Sigrid were married. They had a son of their own the next year and later adopted a daughter as well. It became clear to everyone that Bob was not a faithful romantic partner, but the seedier side of his extramarital affairs wouldn't be revealed to the public until much later, though it began during the height of his Hogan's Heroes popularity. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now let's continue the story. Coming. Bob Crane, what a pleasure to meet you. You must be John. John Henry Carpenter. Proud of each and every name my mama gave me. <laughs> As you should be. So, Richard tells me you're an AV expert? Yep. Regional sales manager for Sony Electronics. Kind of a eh, video equipment guide for the stars. Well, that's just perfect. Seeing as I'm a star, and I have some video equipment that needs fixing. Bob and John quickly became best friends, and they would often go out to bars. And when they went, they went with the express purpose of picking up women. Bob was well-known around town, and he would introduce John as his manager. So we set this up over here, right? How will they not see the camera behind the... Oh, oh, that's good. Oh, John, that is so good. I know, I know. 
I'm an expert. And you'll still be able to see everything because the light coming through there. Oh, John, you magnificent bastard. I'm telling you, Bob, the first time you watch yourself and a stranger doing the horizontal hokey pokey, you're going to want to set up like this every time. And with the camera hidden back there, I guess we won't be having to deal with people saying they don't want to record it. <laughs> no, Bob, there's nothing stopping us. So Bob Crane was a pervert, filming sexual encounters without consent. How long had he been a sexual deviant? Well, several accounts report that his sexual infidelity extended back to his days on the radio in Connecticut in the 1950s. He supposedly had sex with countless women, all the while hiding it as best he could from his first wife and family. Though before meeting John Henry Carpenter, he kept his sex life and affairs hidden from family and close friends. And everything was, by all accounts, consensual. After Hogan's Heroes was canceled in 1971, however, his life started to spiral downward. I'm telling you, Bob, this is a good role. This role is Colonel Hogan. Just like the last script you gave me, and the script before that, and every single script that gets put in my hands, I'm the same damn character. Well, that's who the people love. I just don't want to be Hogan for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, that's exactly what Bob was. He continued getting money through guest starring roles in numerous comedies in the early 1970s. Policewoman, Gibbsville, Quincy M.E., The Love Boat. But he never got the chance to shine as something new in the way that he wanted. Well, he was eventually given his own show in 1974, The Bob Crane Show. But if Hogan's Heroes was treasure to critics, this show was trash. The network delayed airing it for a year and brought it in as a mid-season replacement show in 1975. The show was canceled after the second episode aired and produced 14 episodes total. All this time, Bob's sex life was becoming more and more well-known, and he made less attempts to hide it as his acting career plummeted. Hey, Bob, I'll level with you. I want you for the part. The whole writer's room wants you for the part. Excellent. That's just fantastic. Well, hold on. There's a but to this. Uh, but? Your, uh, your relationships with women have not gone unnoticed. And the network just doesn't feel comfortable putting you in as our star while that kind of thing is going on. I'll change. I, I promise. I can stop doing this whenever. Well, in that case, when you've stopped, however long that takes, the network might be more interested. But the networks weren't the only ones upset by what Bob would himself describe as a sex addiction. How was the shoot? Good. It was really good. I mean, another late night. Oh, I gotta ask him to stop with the late night shoots. Oh, but you'd hate that, though, wouldn't you? Whatever do you mean? I just mean, I know you like working those 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. hours. Oh. Is this about the fact that you retired from the industry? Excuse me? I just feel like, you know, you're resentful. Maybe missing it and taking it out on me? Bob... I can't believe this is the route you're going. Well, let me just remind you. It was your choice to retire after having our kid. I know it was my choice, and that's not what this is about at all. Well, what then? You are not working nights. Do you think I'm stupid? I... I can't decide which is worse, if you think I'm just dumb, or you just don't care. Don't care that... That you're screwing other women? Bob, everyone knows. Honey, I... Stop. You're not going to talk your way out of it. The time for apologies was a long time ago, and you didn't come ready to make one tonight. I... I'll change. You won't. And that's why I'm leaving. Patricia. 
Wait. Sigrid, whose real name was Patricia Olson, separated from Bob in 1977, just a year before his death. While his film career languished, Bob took to the road doing dinner theater tours. He had lost both of his wives at this point and most of his respect in the industry, but he still had one person at his side, John Henry Carpenter. John quit his job at Sony and became national sales manager at Akai, so he could travel for business to the same place as Bob's dinner show was, and the two would continue their amateur pornography. And before long, the two ended up in Scottsdale, Arizona at the same time during a run of the show, Beginner's Luck. That show would turn out to be his last, before Bob was mysteriously killed in his room at the Winfield Place Apartments. And the murder weapon? The very tripod he used for recording his escapades. Patty sure made a bundle out of Dad. Can I quote you? Bob's first son, Robert Crane, would later accuse his stepmother, Patricia, of the murder. The relationship between son and stepmother was contentious. What exactly are you saying? He said of the murder, quote, Nobody got a dime out of it, except for one person. Though the sentiment was spiteful, Robert wasn't entirely wrong. Did you expect her to come to the trial? I knew she wouldn't. Crane had five children and an ex-wife, but the entirety of his estate was left to Patricia in his will. Robert's wife Patricia was never officially listed as a suspect, and the Maricopa County DA office was adamant that they had already found the killer. District Attorney Rick Romley said, quote, We never characterized Patty as a suspect. I am convinced John Carpenter murdered Bob Crane. Patricia herself never responded to Robert's ribbing. So who did it? The vengeful ex-wife, the seedy friend, or perhaps some other figure lurking in the shadows of Bob's life. Tune in for episode two of The Bob Crane Murder for the end of the story. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the murder of Bob Crane. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Jay Silvers, with production assistance by Maggie Admire, and written by Kenneth Martin and Samantha Gurosh. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Joshua Kahn, Michael Malconian, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. Unsolved.